Welcome to DNA Unlocked, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. In DNA Unlocked, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the ever-evolving perception of human biology and disease processes, thanks to a growing mountain of genetics and omics data. Through discussions with colleagues and other leading research experts, Deshays unpacks how drug developers decode human genetics to solve some of the most challenging diseases. Mutations that develop over the course of life accumulate and contribute to cancer progression. Additionally, variations in people's immune systems also affect the likelihood that they end up with cancer. Genomics and other omics are giving researchers new insights into one of the world's most feared collection of diseases. In this episode, I talk to Angela Coxon, Vice President of Oncology Research at Amgen, where she is responsible for the discovery, validation, and preclinical development of a broad range of oncology therapeutics. Angela's team is developing molecules to outfox cancer cells, including bispecific T-cell engager molecules that tether a T-cell to a cancer cell, thereby inducing the T-cell to attack and kill the malignant cell. It's a pleasure to be here today with Angela Coxon. I've been looking forward to having a conversation where we can talk in a freeform way about oncology and using emerging technologies to uh, unlock the secrets of a cancer cell. Cancer is different in important respects from uh, other diseases that we have touched on in some of the prior episodes. So, Can you touch on a little bit what are the similarities and the differences in terms of thinking about the application of of genetics and other omic technologies to cancer? Cancer is a genetic disease. It's all around changes that take place in the genome. And it's genes that are involved in controlling the way that cells divide and grow. Cancer comes through the collection of mutations that take place in the cancer cells themselves. And we refer to those as somatic mutations rather than inherited mutations. And in the vast majority of cases, the cancer is not inherited from your parents. I think around 5 to 10% of them are inherited from your parents. Um, the greatest example of that is probably the BRCA1 and BRCA2 breast cancer mutations. Most of the tumors that we see are not inherited. They come from environmental stress or the stress of the cells proliferating over time. Given that, how do you use genetics as a tool to identify tumor selective targets for drugs? There's been an explosion in that field over the past 25 years, and it comes through DNA sequencing and RNA sequencing of the tumor samples themselves. That technology really has um, expanded dramatically over the past 20 years. And now many patients, it's almost routine for them to get their tumor sample sequenced at an academic center. 
We now estimate, uh, for instance, in lung cancer, that 50% of patients in the United States are getting their tumor sequenced. And we think that's only going to expand as this technology uh, becomes more and more important. We've been able to use this to direct a therapy to a patient based on the DNA sequence of their tumor. We've known about mutations and tumors for decades now. How long is it going to take us to get to that 100%? How do you think that's going to unravel in the future? One of the things that's really accelerating this is the number of therapeutics that are becoming available or actionable for those mutations. I think there was less of a drive to get your tumor sequenced when there wasn't a therapy available. What we've seen in lung cancer, at least, there are eight different therapies available to be given to a patient once the mutation has been identified. So I expect that because there are more and more therapies available, that this will expand in the next few years. And the tests are becoming much more routine. They're becoming much cheaper. The panels are more routine. I I think we're going to see very quickly that this will be more widespread. About 90% of cancers are caused by 8 to 10 genes, but it's possible that the other 10% are caused by collective mutations in literally hundreds of different genes. Do you think it's likely that that's the case, that those residual 10% of cancers are caused by hundreds and hundreds of mutations in different genes? Or do you think cancer is really just caused by a small defined cluster of mutations in a small number of genes in everybody who ends up with cancer? It seems to be very dependent on the type of cancer. Cancers like lung cancer and melanoma, where they're caused by a known carcinogen, they seem to have thousands of single nucleotide variants. Whereas a Cancer like breast cancer has much fewer variants. And there's a a consortium of people that looked at thousands of whole genome sequencing. And what came out of that was very clearly a difference between different types of cancers. In cancer, you have oncogenes that normally promote things like tissue repair, for example. They acquire mutations that make them operate in a completely unregulated way. They might be on all the time, regardless of whether you have tissue damage and they're driving the cells to to duplicate. And then there are tumor suppressor genes. Those play the opposite role in normal tissue. They act as breaks to prevent cells from duplicating in an uncontrolled way. You can get mutations that disable that break And so now the cells can grow in an uncontrolled way. We now know there's eight different targets for lung cancer. And these would be, I assume, oncogenes that promote the growth of a tumor. Are we done? Are there going to be more genes that are uncovered in lung cancer? Is this the tip of the iceberg or is this the whole iceberg? What we've talked about so far have been oncogenes that, as you point out, when they're mutated, they cause the cell to grow and divide uncontrolled. One area that we haven't really tapped into at all has been the tumor suppressor field, and that's been much more difficult to drug. 
the most commonly found mutated tumor suppressor gene is p53 and it's remained largely undruggable through traditional methods for the past several decades so there are known genes that we have not found ways to be able to drug and i think we're exploring new mechanisms all the time to try to address those mutations but many of the oncogenic drivers are now very well characterized in many different settings. Making a cancer therapy against an oncogene is more straightforward because all you have to do is inhibit the oncogene protein. With a tumor suppressor gene, you're completely missing the gene, right? And it's like I took my car and somebody took all the brake pads off. How am I going to stop that car? So... How do you think about therapy where the gene is missing that's driving the cancer? It's a lot more challenging, as you've described. There's one approach that I find particularly compelling, and it's referred to as synthetic lethality. This is a phenomenon whereby you can lose one gene and it doesn't have much of an effect. But when you lose two genes, it causes the cell to undergo distress or die. This has been an approach that has been pursued over the past decade, where you can use one mutation and come in with a drug to drive the other synthetic lethal interaction. And I think that has a lot of promise. You could get a very selective inhibitor that wouldn't attack normal cells or damage them. What are some of the major challenges that you see standing in the way of applying genetics to develop more effective treatments. Many of the mutations so far appear to be undruggable. Another challenge is that identifying the driver mutation can be an issue in um, some of the cancers that we've looked at. One thing that's become very apparent from all of these sequencing studies is just how heterogeneous cancers are. No two tumors look the same. They're heterogeneous within a patient. And so a lot of studies have examined that different lesions within the same patient can have different oncogenic drivers. Given that many cancers are being driven by mutations in these oncogene proteins, and we know what many of those are, in theory, you could look in the blood for evidence of those oncogene mutations. And if you had a sensitive enough technology, that could allow you to diagnose the presence of a cancer way before you show up in the doctor's office with visceral pain or you undergo some form of a scan that reveals that you have some mass somewhere in your body. What's happening in that field and what, what do you see there as the challenges and opportunities? This is an, an area really of intense interest at the moment. With the advances in the sequencing technology that we've talked about, it's now possible to detect very small amounts of DNA in the bloodstream. Not just the detection of the mutations, people are also focused on the detection of epigenetic changes that aren't sequence changes, but alter the function of the DNA, and also changes in the proteome in the circulating Samples. The earlier you detect a cancer, the better. And I think that's an area where the, the advances that we've seen are really going to pave the way for novel detection. 
And it also is going to link back to response to therapy. You could imagine taking samples before and after therapy and understanding very quickly whether a drug was working or not. Do you see greater risk in overdiagnosis using very, very sensitive methods or underdiagnosis? Where do you see the bigger risk? I think it definitely depends on the tumor type. So something like pancreatic cancer, which is usually diagnosed very late stage and has no routine way of screening for it. If you could get a test that could tell you in your blood, for instance, that you have a risk of pancreatic cancer, that would be enormously helpful. With something like breast cancer, where there are standard mammograms, maybe it's less of a need there. Let's go back to thinking about genetics in people's risk of developing cancer. Well, I'm thinking of my dad. He used to sunbathe every day when I was growing up. He lived 99 years without ever developing what I would call a non-trivial cancer, uh, other than these little lesions on the skin that were removed. Meanwhile, I have a brother who, who passed away and he had his first cancer in his mid-50s, and he had a second cancer in his mid-60s. Is that the luck of the draw? Do some people hit the genetic lottery, and they're very fortunate, and they have a genotype that is really protective against cancer? Do you think that there really are just unknown genetic influences that might protect some people? The other example that is fascinating are the people that smoke cigarettes for 90 years and don't develop lung cancer. The feeling is that it's not something to do with the somatic mutations. It's more to do with how the immune system is recognizing these tumors and eliminating them. These people might have an enhanced ability to recognize the tumors and eliminate them using their own immune system. So that's been an area that we've been exploring over the past five years to understand why there are these subsets of people that don't seem to develop those cancers. And those are two good examples where you've got a high mutagenic load, but somehow some people don't seem to develop full-blown malignancies. The tumor cell arises in the context of, of a whole human body, and there's factors in the body, including surrounding cells, cells within the tumor, and perhaps most importantly, our immune system is reacting to the presence of this cancer that's arising due to oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. Take us through a little bit uh, about the relationship between the immune system and cancer, as well as how we can use the immune system to attack cancer. The immune system, when it works well, is really good at recognizing uh, aberrant cells and eliminating them, particularly foreign cells. Cancer cells, however, they're really good at adapting and changing and uh, avoiding the immune system. What happens in a normal situation is those abnormal proteins that we talked about, they get chewed up into peptides and they get expressed on the cancer cell surface using the major histocompatibility complex, MHC. And then a T cell comes along and it can recognize that aberrant protein. It's now referred to as neoantigens. If it's all working well, the T cell is very good at eliminating the cancer cell. 
The trouble is that the cancer has evolved mechanisms so that it isn't detected by the T cell. And things that it's learned to do is to downregulate the MHC complex and also upregulate the immune checkpoints. That has led to a revolution in the field of cancer therapeutics. And um, now many patients benefit from immune checkpoint blockade. The best examples are the anti-PD-1 and the anti-CTLA-4 therapies. But still, uh, most cancer patients don't derive benefit from that first wave of immunotherapies. So the field has been focused on trying to identify other ways that we can adapt the immune system to recognize the cancers and eliminate them. One approach is T-cell engagers in the form of bispecific antibodies that recognize targets on cancer cells that are unique to the cancer cell surface and then link those cancer cells to a T-cell, which when it's brought into proximity of the cancer cell will attack and kill the cancer cell. That sounds like, okay, problem solved. We can all go home. But of course, Angela, you know that's not the case. What are the challenges with making an approach like that work? Why doesn't it work for everything that we're trying to do in cancer? It has to bind to something very selective on the tumor cell, the bispecific antibody. And um, we and others have spent decades looking for tumor selective antigens that the bispecific antibody could bind to. The bottom line is that there are very few, if any, tumor-selective antigens. So what that means is that antibody doesn't just bind to the tumor cell, it also binds to some normal cells. And because the T-cell mechanism is such a potent way of killing tumor cells, it also ends up doing some damage to the normal cells. So one of the real challenges is getting it to just selectively target the tumor themselves. The other challenge is that when T-cells kill the tumor cells, they release cytokines as part of that mechanism. That cytokine release can be quite detrimental to the host. And so we've been working on ways to mitigate that cytokine release. There's hundreds, if not thousands of genes in the human genome that are required for the proper operation of our immune system. And those genes are going to be subject to genetic variation, just like all the other genes in the genome. There's probably genetic variation in the strength and persistence of an immune response from one person to another. We know that for a fact because there are people walking around with autoimmune diseases, um, in some cases inherited. We know in that case that the immune system is acting too strongly and, and acting against inappropriate tissues. How do you think about genetic variation in the immune system and the relationship of that to cancer? Is that an axis that we can profitably explore to find new targets and new mechanisms? Yeah, I think the, the short answer to that is definitely yes. So we know that the same mechanisms that are involved in the immune system recognizing foreign 
bodies, such as viruses or bacteria, are the same mechanisms that are used to eliminate cancer cells in, in many cases. One area that we've been exploring very heavily is trying to understand, do those mechanisms that are involved in an autoimmune disease, could they be tapped into to develop therapeutics to eliminate cancer cells? And I think that's an area that um, it has not been well understood yet. You could easily imagine that some of those same genes that are involved in ramping up the immune system in autoimmune disorders could also be a way of eliminating cancer cells with a therapeutic. Let's say you have a cancer and you find an oncogene that it's actually driving that cancer. At this point, it's just a matter of making a drug that shuts off that oncogene. That's pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> if only it were, right? <laughs> so are all oncogenes susceptible to drugs that would shut them off? No, they are not susceptible to traditional methods of drug discovery. Many of the oncogenes and tumor suppressors that we've talked about are things like transcription factors that so far have been unable to be drugged. An area of research that you're very closely involved with is coming up with novel mechanisms to drug those targets, such as protein degradation. And I think that offers a very novel and exciting way of going after these new drug targets. Maybe you want to say a few words about how we're using that to try to go after these targets that are well-established, but so far have remained undruggable. What we are hoping is that instead of relying on the drug to actually do the work, we can rely on natural cellular mechanisms to get the job done. And in this case, the natural cellular mechanism would be uh, proteins inside cells whose job it is to destroy other proteins when the cell no longer needs them. We make drugs that essentially have two hands, one hand that grabs onto the protein we want to eliminate and the other hand that grabs onto the cellular protein that engages in destruction of other proteins. And uh, by having those two hands, the drug can simultaneously grab onto both and essentially drag them into close proximity with each other. So the destroying protein can act on the protein that you want to get rid of that's causing the cancer. There's an enormous amount of research and discovery that takes place over many years in order to develop new cancer drugs and, and new methods of killing cancer cells. We, it, we're optimistic, but we know we have a lot of work ahead of us. Angela, it's great to have a wide-ranging discussion like this. Thank you very much for joining me today, and I look forward to seeing you back in the office soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DNA Unlocked. And thanks again to Angela Coxon, Vice President of Oncology Research at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the DNA Unlocked Q&A webinar discussion on September 15th. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. In the final episode of DNA Unlocked, we will learn about a new approach to quantifying genetic risk for common diseases with Amit Kara, a physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and a pioneer in the area of polygenic risk scores. 
To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to The Scientist's Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.